0: they have the capital to spend. They're making money for the first time in a long time on the spreads from credit and the interest rates and what have you. There's just this hesitancy on the impact of the macroeconomic indicators on consumer spending.
1: You're listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay
2: Greetings and hello, I am James Robert Lay and welcome to episode 284 of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series and I'm excited to welcome Rob Murray to the show. Rob is a BFSI industry leader for Three Pillar Global, an innovative product development partner whose solutions drive rapid development, market share, and customer growth for financial brands. And today we are going to dive into some of the biggest growth opportunities when it comes to developing products, a product mindset to guide you, dear listeners, so that you can move forward and make progress along your own journey of growth. Welcome to the show, Rob. It is good to share time with you today, buddy.
0: It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So thank you for having me.
2: Before we get into talking about how to develop a product mindset, what is good for you right now, personally or professionally, it is your pick to get started on a positive note.
0: I'll take both. Personally, things are going well. I've got a beautiful family living here in Charlotte, North Carolina. My beautiful bride is doing well, and I have two uh, young, uh, well, not young boys anymore. One's 20, the other's 17. They're both happy and healthy, so all is good on that front. From a professional standpoint, I just recently started a, a new role with Three Pillar Global, leading their BFSI strategy and their industry organization. So super excited to be with Three Pillar.
2: Well, let's talk about that. And I want to start off on looking at some of the challenges, some of the roadblocks that you see. And, and you're bringing a lot of industry knowledge as well as a practitioner. And, and with that in mind, the challenges the roadblocks when it comes to financial services financial brands de- developing technology that i would say is is for just technology's sake because they they don't understand the needs or uh, of the people that that they're creating this technology for or maybe they're they're lacking clarity into just the overall digital landscape and and how things have transformed at a rapid pace. What what are you seeing on this front in, in, in regards to some of the challenges or the roadblocks that are holding them back from achieving future growth?
0: There's a lot to unpack there for sure, right? I think uh, taking a step back, I think first and foremost, especially when you get into the larger uh, financial institutions, the organizations are very complex matrixed and interdependent. Right. And so Mm. very difficult to navigate and get things done for, I think, first and foremost, and if needed, we can dig deeper into that one. But and then you take into the regulatory environment across legal risk, compliance absolutely can reduce any speed to market. Right. Even the best ideas that exist within folks and practitioners within financial institutions, they're not going to say they're handcuffed, but at least challenged with those regulatory uh, and compliance issues that they need to adhere here too, but having been at work for both Bank of America and Wells Fargo, uh, I can tell you that uh, folks on the digital product side uh, absolutely have the best interest of their customers in mind, and they always do. Right? It, it's uh, sometimes it may not always feel feel that way to the customer, but the reality of it is they they certainly do. And the other side of that, so not only you know organization being complex and what have you, uh, the regulatory environment. You've you know certainly from a a tech stack perspective. Mm-hmm. If you take a step back and look at their technologies, many of these organizations uh, have gone through a significant number of mergers and acquisitions over the last gosh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And many of these systems are duct taped together, right? As they, they've tried to uh, put these these technologies together. And there's a preference, at least historically, there's been a preference by financial institutions to have all of their technology on-prem, right? And again, aligning to that, that legal risk compliance, you know, they reduce their risk of exposure by having those systems on-prem. You, you begin to see some of that change now. There's an appetite now by banks and other financial services uh, industries or sectors uh, beginning to migrate into the cloud. I think which will, um, over time, will help speed to market and those types of things. But uh, that takes time, right? There's a lot, uh, a lot to move there. And then there's some of the economic, uh, macroeconomic indicators, right? If you if you look uh, look at the rising interest rates, rates, inflation, you look at potentially um, uh, a recession, which causes concern in consumer spending, which then ultimately causes concern on the commercial side of the business. Again, especially on your larger banks, there's this hesitancy to spend money. There's there's a they have banks have capital, at least for my you know, from, from my research, they have the capital to spend. They're making yeah. money for the first time in a long time on the spreads from credit and the interest rates and what have you. There's just this hesitancy on the impact uh, of um, the, the macroeconomic indicators on consumer spending, which seems to be pretty strong. So all that that does is then pull back the spending, right, to a certain yep. extent. And there's variability there, right? You have some banks, I think City is one um, that is increasing spending in twenty twenty three, right? They're 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 double uh, double down, and then there's others that, that are a little more hesitant, depending on their you know uh, appetite for risk and those types of things.
2: I'm hearing a common theme and pattern in your perspective, and it's you know I would summarize this a lack of clarity, um, a lack of clarity at a macroeconomic level, but then also if we go inside the organization, what are the things that you said early in your thinking was the size, uh, the complexity to really navigate change, maybe even more deeply exponential change or change happening at an exponential rate to to get things done. And so we just get stuck. We get stuck in what I diagnose and write about is the cave of complacency. There's the great you know, thinking around the paradox of choice, when given too many choices, we tend to not make a choice. And there's a lot of choices, a lot of decisions that are having to be made right now. And so when there is a lack of clarity, that leads to confusion, that confusion is rooted in complexity. What are you seeing on this front around the the human side of this outside of technology transformation? But I would say the human transformation that needs to happen in line with technology transformation.
0: Yeah, I I think I I think it's best probably when looking at that to take a step back and number one, just high level look at kind of organizational design and structure of a a financial institution Uh, and then look maybe to even where they were historically in the methodology in which they deliver technology, right? And so yeah. if you take a step back and you think around organizational structure, and, and I'll talk it in in kind of large banking because it's a little bit of what I know best, right? And so, um, but I think it's consistent across all sectors in insurance, uh, uh, WIM, uh, what have you. But if you take a, a large banking, for example, they have multiple lines of businesses across consumer and small business, commercial, WIM. If you understand that complexity, and you take a step and understand how they're organized around that, right? And so you think there's usually, and let's take the most simplest, I'll say the simple, but it's still complex. Say you're a consumer small business banking line of business. Yep. Where within their leadership organization, you have you can have your own CEO of that specific line of business, right? You have your strategy organization that's there to define strategy. It, now that could be a, take a couple different flavors. That could be a across segment, consumer, small, and there's a bunch of different sub segments within consumer. But consumer, small business, commercial, mid market, all those segments. So you have these strategy teams that are defining strategy for segment and/or well, let's say customer journeys or experiences that yep. live across uh, multiple uh, product sets. So if they think, again, in simpler, simplest form, deposits, card, lending, you think about cross-channel, right? Uh, again, con- uh, branch, contact center, digital as a channel, right? Which is mm-hmm. a change of thinking. Um, and you think about how they're organized within each, they're so siloed within each of those organizations, it makes really, it really very difficult to say as a strategy organization, how am I going to define growth across different product sets, across right. the different channels, right? And it just adds to that that complexity. And then if you look historically back to how financial institutions have delivered, right? At its very core, very demaic. if you're familiar with Uh, the DMAIC Six Sigma methodologies and those types of things and waterfall methodologies Mm -hmm. where you identify a problem, right? Create your problem statement, your business case, you get funded, you get approved, hopefully, then you get prioritized, you stand up an organization and then you build requirements and then you execute, right? That really waterfall methodology that takes takes a really long time to deliver. Well, Mm -hmm. even though banks are evolving from this waterfall and Damaic methodology or way of thinking, there's still, I think some of that exists, into more of an agile way of, uh, of delivery, still some of the old muscle memory still mm. exists, right? I still fund projects, right? I still fund yeah. um, at, at that level. If I'm, I'm solving a problem, I've allocated X number of dollars and to address that, that, that particular problem, and so I'll stand up a project team. Now, these days it may be an agile uh, pro, uh, scrum team or whatever to deliver on it, but I'm standing it up in some cases specifically to address that problem. Versus what is true kind of agile, aligning to agile principles and methodology is standing up multiple or you know agile teams across your organization and keep pumping work into those agile teams to deliver. Back in 08, When I first started in this space, we started executing in in very waterfall methodology. We literally transitioned in mid-project to a it was a deposits replatforming and research and experience optimization projects or multiple projects. We started with waterfall and we began to execute from an agile standpoint, right? The what the leadership heard at the time was agile is cheaper and faster. And what was missed in the translation is agile only becomes cheaper and faster when you have your scrum teams in place for a long period of time so you can keep pushing that work into the scrum team that then increases velocity, right? Yeah. And then increases your ability to deliver work. If you just stand up a, a scrum team to deliver <laughs> and then you've then you you've delivered whatever on the problem statement, and, and you remove, uh, basically take away that project team, you lose any sort of efficiencies that you're yep. gaining by using your agile principles, if that makes sense.
2: It makes perfect sense. And I want to pause you here just a, a moment because, you know, you're talking waterfall, the past, if you will, to where the opportunities going forward, particularly around building what, what I want to you know move the conversation into here in just a minute. Once we get some clarity around this, you know, the present and in the future, th- this idea of, of agile and agile methodology, um, because to roll your thinking back here, you were sharing the, the, the complexity um, and almost the, the exponentiality of both problems and opportunities when you look at small business, commercial consumer or retail and then you begin to look at the different product lines that fit underneath that and then you can break that out into the different stages of the consumer buying journey awareness consideration purchase adoption advocacy i mean it it just the complexity just blow up super super quick and then we i see leadership teams they "Ah, it's just too big we're just not going to do anything um and hope hope that we can get to the next transition of power quote unquote right right with, with that in mind though you're you're speaking to a potential path forward to navigate the complexities here with an agile methodology or an agile approach to growth for clarity for the dear listener. What is agile for, say, a banker? They might have heard about it, but they're not operating through this context yet. What is agile from your worldview?
0: Well, you know, it's, it's a great question, James, Robert, because the core agile and bank agile are two different, they can be two different things, right? At its core, agile is a way of delivering technology or software in a way that it's Uh, continuous, you drive through uh, multiple iterations of continuous improvement, and it's really broken out into a series of sprints. So you get this, um, you know, conceptually, it's, uh, and just use a little bit of the terminology, you take your business objective or business uh, or, or what you're trying to solve for, and you start to build these into different epics and user stories that ultimately deliver on um, your overall expected experience. But the the key to agile is to prioritize those what they call user stories in a way that delivers something they call NPV, which is um, which is that what is the most important thing to a to the to the success of whatever project it is. Prioritize that. Deliver it in its simplest form. And expose it to the customer so that they can go out there and understand it, work, utilize it. What are the what are the things that they're um, gravitating? What functionality or whatever they gravitating to? Gravitating to what challenges or problems were they have that you can have? And through these two-week sprints and iterations, you can continuously prove on the experience, and it's yeah. almost real time, right? Yep. Versus, and that's kind of its purest. And there's better folks to describe Agile than I can. But in its purest form, that's, you know, for the simple, uh, to make it simple, uh, uh, stupid, which I I like to do to, to make sure that I can understand things.
1: Just like people feel stressed about money, we understand digital growth can also feel confusing, frustrating and overwhelming. But it doesn't have to feel this way for you because you can join the Digital Growth University to gain clarity through education, to overcome the fear of the unknown. Build your team's courage with a growth strategy to eliminate the fear of change and increase your confidence with coaching to remove the fear of failure. Visit digitalgrowth.com university to apply.
0: When you look at Bank Agile or, or compared to Waterfall, you right. have and then I'll go to bank Agile. waterfall is this very uh, once a project is approved, you have funding, you stand up your team, you go through a requirements gathering session that can last several months. You take those requirements, you turn them over to technology. They code for them for on a couple months, could be a year. They come back and say, here you go. This is your finished product. And it's riddled with defects, not because necessarily technology are are incompetent, because that's not the case at all. It's Mm -hmm. usually because the business, the line of business, don't know how to articulate the need what they need in a way that makes sense for technology. And then you get this blended view. And so I'm a root cause guy, right? So I, I like to really understand the root cause when I so Rob, why do you talk about bank agile? And bank Agile, in my mind, has evolved because of the platforms in which these experiences reside. And so mm. if you look at the the front end experience, agile can very easily, adopt to that kind of front-end methodology, right? Because yes. I can sit as a line of business, I can sit as a digital product person, I can sit in a room and I can see the experience and then say, no, that's right, that's wrong, whatever, and iterate on it. Yep. That lends itself very nicely in Agile. The challenges with most large banks is the legacy systems that yep. sit behind all that.
2: Right? Backstage.
0: The backstage. And and they're very, they're very old. And the coding doesn't lend itself to be A two week iteration. It could be a six month. And so you have all this front end work that's being done at a rapid pace. And -hmm. then you have all this back end work that's in some, in many cases, that is really waterfall in nature because of the length of time. Um, to code those types of backend systems. And you have this kind of challenge, right? That, that you're actually writing user stories in Agile that need to be translated into business requirements for your backend waterfall systems that then get thrown into a project that may be six months. And so it becomes very challenging. I think what the what I like us as we move towards a more uh, cloud-based uh, model, I mm-hmm. think a lot of that will be addressed and resolved, where the technologies that used to sit on legacy backend systems now sit on a cloud much more easily, uh, well, a lot of the heavy lifting and hard work is done in the platform migration from those systems, uh, legacy backend systems on the cloud. And then larger organizations will become way more efficient in the delivery of their experiences. Um, it's just challenging right now in order to, to do that.
2: You've used this word a couple of times. You've used the word experience. And when you think about experience, you know, I think the mind can go to the customer experience. Um, It could also be the internal employee experience, customer experience being front stage, employee experience being backstage. Right. And the way that we look at experience here at the Digital Growth Institute is experiences are well-defined systems and processes that have been A, strategically thought out, mapped out, um, B, applied, and then back to the point here of our discussion around agile, continuously optimized over time, resulting in hopefully more positive emotions than negative emotions. And a, a key element that that comes in all of this is, and you mentioned this before, is the MVP or the minimum viable product. Um, and I want to get your take on this. Because I know, and I've heard this so many times from financial brand teams, and it's more of that legacy mindset that we want to be 100% complete, quote unquote, before we go to market, Um, where I'm advocating, let's take an 80% approach, um, and then we'll learn as we continue to iterate going forward. And that makes some people feel very uncomfortable. What's your recommendation here? for financial brands that want to wait until you know things are 100% perfect and ready to launch when the whole idea of agile and product you know optimization experience optimization doesn't matter what the optimization is but we'll just call it optimization is about learning through iteration going forward uh, maybe there's a fear of failure tied into this somehow what's your take on this
0: we hit on this a little bit early with the interdependencies across the different mm. organizations and systems and, and, and what have you. And so it becomes um, it becomes a little more challenged. Certain things lend itself to be a little more uh, agile uh, in nature than some other things. But I would say sure. 100% aligned with your thinking and we need, uh, financial institutions need to move quicker, right? They are at in a highly competitive environment where, um, multiple, so large banks within themselves, uh, uh, around Chase and, uh, B of A and Wells Fargo and, and Citi, and they're, they're, competing against credit unions. They're, they're competing against, uh, digital banking. They're now, uh, beginning to compete against, uh, <laughs> issuers are getting into it. The American Express the discovers, uh, what have you. And so it's this race to a certain extent on, uh, the best, uh, I would say, custom digital customer journey or, and or experience. And mm-hmm. so uh, to wait until something is completely evolved uh, likely will put you behind uh, where your competitors are. There's a, uh, and I won't name the name, but I was watching the Super Bowl uh, a month or so ago and there was a, it's a new digital bank. Uh, actually, it's less than a bank. It's more about uh, UI and a front end and it really aligns itself to open banking right yeah. which i think if you're going to prioritize anything in my mind open banking is the biggest risk to large financial institutions and really financial institutions in general right yes. and and there's a bank view of open banking in which from a selfish point of view you the banks would like to have um, everything sit on their experience right and that that the banks would have access to all of their customers information to help them influence Products and services and those types of things, as long as they're using their products and services, right? Well, there's this kind of move in this concept of open banking, which most people, if not everybody, is familiar with. But it's the fintechs that begin to provide that user interface that then links into all of your financial service. So, all my deposits, my investments, my lending, and then it begins to determine and make recommendations based upon your FICO and those types of things. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen! Did you know you could get this auto, auto loan cheaper over here? Or did you know that you have? Listen, you have a CD expiring that was four point. I was paying four point five percent over at Wells. It's paying you know five percent somewhere else, right? It begins to then it's you talk about personalization and you begin to talk about um, the the power is with the customer, right? Yeah. That's a, that's a big, fairly large risk of attrition uh, in my mind. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, which, are, you know, all large financial institu- institutions across all subsectors also are 100 percent focused on re- retention, especially in this environment. And so um, I would think I, I went off on a bit of a tangent, James Roberts, so I apologize. But I okay. think that, that, that's uh, that's a key piece is understanding those experiences and what else is out there. And you've got to inter- iterate at a fast rate in order to to keep up with the competition.
2: I think what you just said right there at the very end, it's understanding what else is out there or what else is going on out there because it's the lack of awareness or the lack of clarity into what is going on in the quote unquote real world that I see as a challenge for many financial brand leaders. It's like philosophically they know things are changing as to what extent or as how fast or or what those experiences feel like. They might not know, and I, it's it's always an interesting exercise when working with a leadership team or even boards of directors and asking them, well, "How many of you have ever opened an, a, an account at, at a neo bank or a neo lender to see what it feels like, and then compare that experience?" You kind of get some questions, and I think this is where I want to dive even deeper because um, your CEO David DeWolf wrote the book. The product mindset, um, which is really helping organizations succeed in the digital economy by changing the way your organization thinks. So let's pause here for just a bit. Would, what are the opportunities to overcome some of the challenges that we've discussed today through developing a product mindset? And what does that mean?
0: This awareness that there's things changing outside of the bank, right? But is there, is What's the exposure of those folks that are executing within Mm. the bank, within the digital product organizations? Um, What's their exposure to what's going on in the rest of the world, right? In fintechs and those types of things. Mm -hmm. Again, just pointing on my own experiences, practitioners work very hard. They are in meetings from 7 a.m. to 6, 7 p.m. at night. There are hundreds of emails a day. They Mm -hmm. are literally you know um, tunnel vision and trying to get the work that they're there there is very very little time unless they are taking time on their own to go outside the four walls uh, and understand what are the what, what are the biggest innovations going on in technology and not only technology but method delivery methodologies right yeah and so yeah. as as being one of those folks and and having left that world uh just uh, 2 years ago i was fascinated by all that's out there. Right. And and just because it's not that I didn't want to learn more. It's, it's, you're you're just somewhat sheltered, uh, within your silo.
2: You're bringing a tremendous amount of empathy to this subject that I've spoken to many times before, um, and I'm writing about this in my second book, Banking on Change, um, How to Achieve Exponential Growth in the Age of AI. And I look at, I call them the four environments for exponential growth, or the four seasons for exponential growth. You can be learning, thinking, doing, and reviewing. But back to your point, practitioners, super committed, but Absolutely. busy from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., don't have time to review they don't have time to learn they don't have time to think what's the path out of this if you will going forward because can that continue in this rapidly changing exponential world of transformation no i don't
0: think that it can i and and quite frankly that's why i was so intrigued with three pillar being someone who stepped away from it I, a bit of an epiphany, like, oh my goodness, right? There's, yeah. there's such a need in the change of way that we're thinking. And I think there's, I'm different than a, maybe a, a, a consultant who has never worked in a financial, that has no idea of the challenges and the, the hurdles that they need to, to hop over in order to, uh, to, to uh, initiate or drive change. There's a fundamental shift in mindset that needs to occur. And I've seen slivers of it. How do we minim- minimize that time to value? how do we get whatever we're working on into the hands of those that are going to use it, right? If that's externally to our external customers, if that's internally to our uh, employees or whatever, so they can uh, pound on it and see what's mm-hmm. working. What's what features functionalities do they adopt? Which ones they don't and why I think a perfect example of, you know, when you think about in the online sp- banking space specific with something like bill pay In its introduction. I think bill pay was, it was great, right? It's, um, uh, however, if you look outside the four walls of the financial institutions, there's much easier, more efficient, w- and much more timely ways to deliver your payments than a bill pay that unless I'm paying on my, uh, on us bank, right, that's going to be acknowledged that day. It's going to take a day, a week, or right? And so until real-time payments hits and there's an adoption of that, those other types of organizations will take that away. From from banks, and I think that's just a perfect example. Is how do you be, the, that feature functionality? How many many million dollars a year are they spending on that feature functionality? Is it something that we really should be? A prioritizing or is this something we should back off until the technology catches up and so we can deliver something in the, in the market that's a little more competitive so what is the answer to that i don't know let's develop something to see if that solves it right let's let's have a new think of getting it into a test market to see if those types of things are working and adopted right before you spend tens of millions of dollars maybe you spend a half a million to a million
2: Yeah, you're getting me excited on this because now you're going down a path of piloting and prototyping or prototyping and piloting before we make these massive investments to get some early market feedback. Are we going down the right path? Are we completely off? Are we solving your pains or are we adding to them? And I think, you know, you're talking on the on the bill pay side of things. I think, you know, when we think about payments, you know. You have made it. And this is, it's always like the early adopters are typically like the younger generations. Um, And so Gen Z, um, millennials, but you know, you have made it when your brand becomes vernacular in the common marketplace of like, hey, just Venmo me, right? And now I'm seeing that move into say the baby boomer uh, generation because my wife and I, we just went and picked up some Valentine's cookies um, from a woman baking out of her home and how do we pay? She said, you can just Venmo me. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> it's just an interesting observation. And I think that's that's kind of, you know, as a d- digital anthropologist myself, studying the intersection of marketing, sales technology and human behavior through the lens of financial services for the last 20 plus years, like you, even though I necessarily haven't worked within a bank or within a credit union, I've got a lot of empathy too for the challenges and for the struggles here. And now we're talking about something thinking differently because it's the thought that is going to then inspire the next iteration or the next action that we take, which is the whole core essence of developing a product mindset. So what does that really mean? And how, as we start to wrap up our conversation, how can the dear listener do just that, develop a product mindset?
0: Again, I think it comes back to changing a, a bit of the way you think as a, as a, a digital product practitioner, right? Mm-hmm. Is beginning, how can I, instead of as I build out uh, epics and user stories and look to deliver this thing, and how do I begin to take little chunks of that and, and get it out into folks' hands, right? It's it's that it really is that fun in my mind. It's that fundamental um, shift in thinking around minimizing your, to- your, your time to value to your customer. And we talk about, and David talked about this in his book and again that book is why I'm I'm with three pillar that eventually solves a specific need for that customer and then how do you look at it so it's it's this continuous improvement on the experience and expanding on the the core thing you're trying to solve and i think banks have shown to, like they've shown hints of doing this i think zelle yes. probably a reasonably good example of that and i know they've had some challenges this could be a whole other podcast about the the regulatory challenges going on uh but but i think zelle was probably a it took a while to deliver it but reasonably good uh, example of how you could take something that's solving one specific need for a customer right and then uh, and uh, deliver that without having it to be in, necessarily intertwined with everything you have going on around, around your acquisition channels and your your servicing channels and those types of things
2: it's interesting to note like zelle as an example It also shows the power of collaboration too. Absolutely. Um, And and bring together different organizations, different minds to collaboratively work together to solve the common pain points that cause common people problems. Um, And then now it's like, okay, well now there's new challenges. So we're gonna have to work together to get beyond those. And you mentioned something, breaking it up into smaller bite size chunks, it makes me think of the Shell Silverstein poem. You mentioned your kids at the start of this podcast. my wife and I, we have 12, 10, 8, and six. And Shell Silverstein wrote a, a poem that is just, you know, ingrained in my mind on this subject here that i I love to share with financial brand leaders. And it's the story about Melinda May. She thought she'd eat the monstrous well. she she said she could. Uh, she thought she was she said she could so she started right at the tell and everyone said melinda you're much too small but that didn't bother melinda at all she took little bites and chewed very slow just like a girl good girl sh- should and, and and the whole essence of that story is how do you eat the well how do you eat the elephant you eat it bite by bite right. by bite and that is the kind of core to this idea of what we've been talking about today of of, of agile and it's like you know Take a chunk, two-week sprint. Take a chunk, two-week sprint. As we wrap up here, and what a fantastic conversation, Rob. I always like to send the dear listener off with something practical that they can use to move forward and make progress on their journey. Something small, a small bite, um, if you will. What would be the next best step that they could take when it comes to developing and applying a product mindset, something small that they could do right now in the present moment.
0: Honestly, read the book. In my mind, it was changing. It changed my perspective as a practitioner. It changed my perspective on the way to do the thing, do uh, to to execute in the product space. Um, yeah, and, and there's value there for sure. And so yeah. that would be the first step. And it begins to put you in the mindset of of one beginning to shift your thinking a little bit. And number two, it does a it does a good job of sharing real life examples of where they've, because it, it seems too big, right? It, mm. it, like sitting in the seat, it seems to, it's like, yeah, but you can't do that here. Um, and then as you start to think through it and read through the, the examples that, that are provided, it's like, oh, you know what? If I would have thought about the way I was delivering XYZ a bit differently, I could have taken uh, this piece and I could have got it into my hands of my yeah. customers quicker right? At least to continuously iterate or the prototype, right? And, and because because banks are so, you know, conscious around regulatory and risk and those types of things of, of things that they push out the market and you're moving money. So, or there's money involved, right? And so you can be very cautious. So it's not lost on me, um, uh, uh, you know, because of, of some of the constraints, but really push, the, push yourself, read the book and then begin to push yourself and think about how you may do what you're doing today a bit differently, uh, how can I push whatever little piece, wherever you are today within whatever you're delivering, how can I push that into the hands of of a test group or something that, that can bang on it and, and say, yep, yeah, this is working great or this isn't working so great.
2: That's a fantastic recommendation. And I don't think it's self-serving at all because it all comes down to thinking differently. And that's the key essence of the book. And before an individual and a team and an organization. And I talk about the three transformations needed for continued growth in a digital world. You transform the self and then transform the team because teams are made up of individuals. You transform teams. Well, that's how you begin to transform the organization, Love it. Yep. but it doesn't begin with thought. It doesn't begin with thinking. This is why I love your recommendation on reading the book. It starts by seeing things differently. Yes. And when someone reads this book, they will begin to see things differently, which then as a result of that, that's where they begin to think differently. But I'm going to caution the dear listener here, just because you think differently, and I've asked this question now to over a thousand financial brand leaders, what happens when you think differently? And they respond, well, I'm going to do different. I'm going to be different. I'm going to act different. And I said, you think you will. But in reality, for you to actually do and be and act differently, to bridge the gap between the thought and the action, comes down to the feeling and the emotion. Your desire, your feeling to transform and to do different must be far greater than your desire to remain the same. So just something to keep in mind for the dear listener as they're moving forward on their own journey of growth here.
0: And it aligns to change. Right. So what are the things that make people change? Right. It's got to be that emotional response to something. Right. And, and so uh, I love it. Uh, I love the thinking. Yeah. Sure.
2: Well, Rob, this has been a fantastic conversation. What is the best way for someone who is listening? They want to connect with you, Rob, continue the discussion that we started here today. How can they do that? And where can they get the book?
0: Uh, the book, um, actually reach out to me and I'll provide the book to them. So, um, so you could reach out to me at robert.murray at threepillarglobal.com. Uh, go out to our website as well. There's a electronic version available uh, there. So at uh, threepillarglobal.com. And uh, anybody that's listening that would love to further the conversation, more than willing to have it and, and would embrace it.
2: Connect with Rob, learn with Rob grow with Rob. Rob, thank you so much for joining me for another thank episode you. of Banking on Digital Growth. This has been a lot of fun today.
0: I enjoyed it. Thanks so much.
2: As always, and until next time, be well, do good, and make your bed.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. To get even more practical and proven insights along with coaching and guidance, Visit digitalgrowth.com slash insider to join a community of growth-minded marketing and sales leaders from financial brands and fintechs. Until next time, be well and do good.